these are really cool, like big chunks of like existential thinking. And I, so let's, let's apply some of that to the media because you do a good job of speaking about the media specifically you you quote partisan media increases polarization, not by polarizing moderates, but by increasing polarization among those already away from the political center. In short, like-minded media take people who are already somewhat extreme and make them even more extreme. And that's uh, William Lemondusky. But mm -hmm. the idea there is that it, I, my mom and her friends watch Fox News. And they did that because my mom was married to a Rush Limbaugh Fox mm -hmm. News guy. And I love him. I mean, they're, they're no longer together, which is actually better. But yes. I don't think he's a bad person based on it. But he did change my mom's views. <laughs> you know, while they were married for 40 years. And it was one of those things where it, it is, it's a partisan piece. And I think that you talk about here, you said in this chapter, access the role of partisan selective exposure and how it plays a role in our lives. You know, do I watch partisan news like MSNBC or Fox News rather than PBS News or NBC, CBS and ABC News Nightly? And this was really good because we do as a group and this is both sides of the political aisle, say that our media is so biased that it's no longer useful. Hmm. And you actually helped, this is the one thing you, well, you did a lot of good things with this book, but this was really clear to me, and I wanted to get your take on it, is that per a bunch of different surveys that you chronicled in your book, we aren't that polarized. If you look at NBC News hmm. and ABC right. News, so if you're looking at, at someone from the actual news channel, it's boring news. It's <laughs> not, right? It's very different than MSNBC and Fox because that's right. opinion-based. Mm -hmm. And that's not really news, right? Those are right. news-related pundits and punditry mm -hmm. and hosts. And, you know, it's more op-ed, you know, gone, right. gone viral exactly. kind of stuff. And I don't think we've ever... I haven't had that discussion, to be clear, yeah. about the differences between that. You want to talk a little bit about, like, you know, Lester Holt? versus Hannity. Right. <laughs> sure. Really big difference. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, this is the part of the book I think that most people are surprised about or push back most against uh, the research that I, that I share in this, because it's so counter to the narrative uh, that, that we generally hear. Um, but, you know, a lot of really good research has come to the conclusion that when you look at your, you know, your, your standard news sources, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, NBC, CBS, ABC Nightly News, uh, PBS NewsHour, uh, that they're, they're not biased. They don't exhibit a consistent partisan bias. And that doesn't mean that, you know, one source doesn't lean a little to the left or one a little to the right or at, you know, one year a little to the left and the next year a little to the right. But overall, looking at your mainstream media news outlets, uh, there there isn't a partisan bias, and this is again, uh, and and there have been studies where they've done this, and I've done this in my own classes. I just take, uh, you know, pick pick whatever issue, you know, right now it's been that say the debt ceiling that's been in the news, and yeah. you know you can you can take a a news article from any of those papers, you know, Wall Street Journal, which has a reputation of being conservative, the New York Times has a reputation of being liberal. You cut out their main section news stories on that and you just, you cut off New York Times, you cut off Wall Street Journal and you give it to students and they can't tell the difference, but you know, which which is which. 
because it's for the most part, it's just sort of straight reporting, you know, on the facts. And uh, this this it's gotten a little bit more complicated since Trump, because there's there is a debate within the media about, you know, if because largely it was always sort of reporting. He he said, she said, you know, the Democrat says this, the Republican says this. But now there's a debate about should there be fact checking, you know, within the main, you know, Donald Trump said this, but it's not true. And is that injecting a bias and or not? Uh, but generally speaking, you know, at, at least previous to Trump, um, the research shows that there's not this consistent partisan bias. Uh, I, so that begs the question, well, why does everybody think that there is one? And part of that is because party leaders keep telling you that there is. And so if we expect that there's this bias, uh, you know, we'll, we'll find one. And there's good research that backs that up as well. Yeah. Uh, but the other, one of the other major issues <clears throat> is that we mistake editorializing for, you know, news reporting. And there's, there's a fundamental That's difference the between the two. Yeah. yeah. And so when, when you, and it used to be easier, you know, when we had the newspaper and if you had a physical newspaper and the, the front pages were, that was just your straight reporting on what was happening. And then you turn to the last couple of pages and it said op-ed and it was very clearly marked and so on. Um, but now it's harder because online it, it still will be labeled often, but it's, it's a lot smaller and it's sort of all together and you're just sort of clicking on links and, uh, or people watch, you know, these shows at night on MSNBC or NB or, uh, on Fox News. And it looks like, you know, they're talking about politics. They're talking about news. <laughs> they're sitting behind a desk, right? They, yeah. they look like they're a reporter, but these people aren't journalists. They're not reporters. They're, they're commentators and there's a fundamental difference. And, uh, and they, you know, they've done studies on this as well, where Americans can't, can't tell the difference between the two. And so if you're, you know, if you're watching Fox News and you're a Democrat, you're going to, you know, you're watching Hannity, you're rightly going to say like, oh, this is, this is so biased. But then you sort of paint with this big brush that the media is biased or, you know, you're a Republican and you, and I see this all the time on Twitter, uh, where, you know, a, a conservative source will sort of have, oh, look at this Washington Post article, um, this, you know, typical liberal Washington Post, but they just link to an editorial. Well, right. it's an editorial written by a liberal person. It's supposed to be opinionated. That is, that is not the Washington Post in general. And so we have to be careful about, you know, knowing what we're reading. Are we reading opinion pieces? Are we watching opinion shows? Or are we looking more at, you know, straightforward news reporting? And each has its place. I, I mean, I, I consume both, but uh, it's important to know what you're dealing with. And, and a lot of people conflate the two, and that's where we get into problems. That's a, such a good point. Have you heard of the book Bad News by Batya Unger-Sargon? No. So she is the editor, senior editor or editor. I'm not exactly sure, but it's a, she's pretty high up at Newsweek. And she this book itself is a, it's a pretty, I don't want to say it's a scathing indictment, but it it's pretty rough on the New York Times and the Washington Post specific mm -hmm. to that claim. And she talks specifically about things like memos that were circulated as early as 2014 that talked about the reporter's having bias because they needed to serve their social graph. Mm -hmm. So if you are a reporter that, you know, is 
of a very popular reporter for the Times as an example, and you're, mm. let's say you're a 32-year-old female, and you're a Yale grad or a Columbia J School grad, and most of your audience is very liberal because they know statistically 91% of people who subscribe to the New York Times are Democrats. Mm. They know this. They also have a group called the DSG. It's the digital services group inside there that tests headlines and tests right. content to see which resonates best with their audience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, contribute to this discussion about is media so biased now that they can no longer report the news. And I have this discussion with a lot of my friends on the right, a buddy mm -hmm. of mine, Kevin, um, and I'd say his last name with that being discreet, Hicks. We get into this all the time. And we have a lot of fun together because if I post a New York Times article, say, I can't take you seriously if you quote right. the New York Times. I'm like, well, no, this is a reporter. This is news. Mm -hmm. This isn't the op-ed side. You know, they do good news and they have 200 actual articles a day coming out of the New York Times. Right. So yeah, they're going to screw things up and they're going to have some biases here and there. But as an overall, they do pretty well. And, you know, the Post, same thing on the news side. Mm -hmm. But I don't think anyone of reason argues that either one of those publications leans left because they just do. Mm. But I think it's, it's to your point, it is the, the line has been so muddled in between op-ed and true news reporting that the, the reputations of these stalwart August publishers are in jeopardy based on that. You know, and I don't think people really understand the width and breadth of the reporting from the New York Times. It's a global organization. And it does right. amazing reporting. If I want to know something about China, uh, in the Washington Post, the same thing. You know, Josh Rogan is a guy that if I want to know what's going on with China, I read him. That's right. been his beat for years, and he's a fantastic reporter. And, you know, Brett Stevens uh, is a reporter that I really enjoy, uh, who's a conservative for the Wall Street Journal. And those are the kind of reporters that I will go to. Robert Costa, you know, another person that I trust almost implicitly. It There's it's almost as though you have to trust reporters more so than the paper. <laughs> you know, mm. if you can kind of build a relationship with the individual versus the institution, I think that's actually a better play most of the time when it comes to, you know, getting to the granularity of what we're talking about. But yeah, this was a really neat piece because I think you did a great job of pushing that out. And you actually talked also, it was a study from Dave Alasio and Mike Allen from Michigan State they conducted a meta-analysis to determine the degree to which the mainstream media actually exhibits partisan bias. And this was from 1948 to 1996, and then a follow-up mm -hmm. study. Um, but it proves that the Shorenstein Center on Media did the same thing. But their report, which you can comment on too, was it wasn't just that it was a bias specific to an ideology, left versus right. It was what we know in the news business is that if it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. So there's an issue around the polarization being part of the decision. Because if if the content itself, which was in the Shorenstein Center on Media, concludes that it's the preference of a negative article for right. a publisher far outweighs that of a positive article. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, and this is, you know, uh, um, one of the reasons why we're so apt to see uh, a, a, bi a partisan bias in the media when there isn't one is a lot of the, the biases within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so if, if, you know, we, we have our biases too, of course, you know, reporters do as well, but at least there's, there, is, there are safeguards in place again, not that they're always perfect, but to try to, you know, keep those in check. And yep. a lot of times, you know, with these good newspapers, this is another, you know, activity I do with students is when I, when I ask them to try to determine, you know, is this a, a right source or a left source? Well, how, how do you do that? Well, uh, you can obviously look at tone, uh, but you can also look at 
right? Who do they, who do they, you know, how many sources do they have on the right? How many sources do they have on the left? How, how many lines do they give that source, right? And when you do this, I mean, a lot of times the students are amazed, like, oh, they, they talk to three Republicans and three Democrats. Those three Republicans have 15 lines total, you know, in the story. The Democrats have 15 lines total in the story. So obviously somebody is counting that and, and being yeah. aware of that, right? And, but when you show people, um, and again, they've done studies like this, you, you have a newspaper article and they craft it so it's very, very neutral, you know, uh, in every imaginable way. And then you give it to Republicans and they say that it's got a pro-Democratic bias. And then you give it to Democrats and they say it's got a pro-Republican bias. And they're, they're looking at the same article, right? Yeah. So yeah. The, the bias is within themselves. They're projecting it onto that. It's what they're seeing. And this is, you know, and this gets gets back to your uh, question here. It That also plays in, you know, this idea of if it bleeds, it leads. Uh the news does have a bias for negative information. And it does. Uh, so if you are, and I share some examples in the book, but you know, if you are a Democrat and you're reading a story about how the online launch of Obamacare was a disaster, you're going to read that and you're going to see that as a partisan bias. And Democrats are going to say, they're, you know, they're not talking about how many lives this is going to save. They're just, you know, talking about this failed website launch. They're going to get it fixed and it's going to be fine. Why are they always focusing on the negative? Um, and likewise, if it's a story about a Republican's primary policy initiative and something goes awry, the, the press is going to report it, right? And and that it was a disaster, that it was a failure. And Republicans are going to see that as as a bias against their their party. So if you have a bias, you know, do this. Uh, just a little suggestion that you can ask yourself. If the, the media was reporting this, right, and you see that as biased against your own party, would they have run the same story if it happened to the other party, right? Mm -hmm. And so you think about the affairs with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, if you're a Republican, you might look at that and say, oh, they're just, this is the liberal media, right? They're focusing on Donald Trump and all these allegations of sexual misconduct and assault and all this sort of thing. But we have evidence that when Democrats do that, it gets coverage, right? Bill Clinton is a perfect example yeah. of that. It's a, the, the media didn't try to cover that up or hide it under the rug. I mean, the, the media is going to report that. And they did report it a lot because it's salacious. <laughs> it it's sure a did. scandal, right? It sells papers. And uh, so a lot of times we see things that might be what, what's called the adversarial bias or the structural bias, and we interpret it as a partisan bias. Uh, when actually it's just sort of these other things that that the that tends to sway what the media is covering. Well, money. I think that's money. the big piece, yeah. right? It's for for me as an. You probably don't know this about me, but I spent twenty years in the advertising business. So I, you know, I worked right. at ad agencies and New York Times as a client, and we bought media from them. But the oh. idea there is that we in the media business know that polarization sells. Right. Right. It's the idea behind it is so important. And, and being in the middle of anything doesn't work, yeah. right? So that's, that's a piece too. If the story itself is going to criticize a, a Democrat and it's at Fox News, it's going to sell. Right. If you said, if you wrote a good story about a, a really cool bipartisan relationship, you know, like Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, right? Right. That's not a story that's going to get any traction today. Yeah. And if you're 
organization as a whole, which many do, it's ad revenue based. And so if you don't get a bunch of clicks, you get a lot of traffic, right? At your site, you're not getting paid. So you're not yeah. going to put a cool story together about, you know, the beauty of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan or, you know, John Boehner and, and uh, Obama back in the day. Right? They, we had these relationships. They don't sell. And that's right. another thing that I think you did a great job of pointing out to your readers is that, yeah, it, it, there may be some biases. And then you you talk about the delineation between op-eds and, and news and how it works specific to, you know, we call it angertainment in the media business or engagement by enragement, you know, however you want to look at it. It's, it's all of these things that we know are going to be powerful. Even the people that, when they talk about my show, I have friends like, Joe, you got to get it. You got to mix it up. You know, you got to piss people <laughs> off. And I'm like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just not my game. And the whole idea of what we're trying to do is get across complex issues to people that really want to understand it. Yeah. And, and if you don't hate each other in the process, you can actually learn something, right? That's, that's kind of the idea. Hmm. So when I was uh, shopping the book, uh, I had a, a publisher tell me, he's like, I think it's a great idea. Uh, you know, you send some chapters and said, I really like it, but uh, you know, we're going to pass because it's like you said, he said, if, if this was a book about, hating the one side or the other, it'd sell yeah. a lot more. <laughs> so they, you know, and so I, I ended up going with, you know, a, an academic publisher because it's, you know, the, the, the popular press, they, they've got to sell books. And what, as you said, it's, it's got to make people angry. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what draws the attention, but that sort of feeds into all this. And it feeds into that false polarization that we were talking about. Why, you know, why Democrats and Republicans think, so low of the other side and uh you know we hate the other side and we think that they hate us because we're so different that that's all because of what what we read and i fall sway to that even though i know all this stuff and you know when i'm scrolling through my twitter feed or whatever it's it's depressing and and it's just uh you know it a lot of anger and resentment and i i constantly have to remind myself this isn't the real world this isn't you know, your, your average typical Democrat or Republican. Um, and if, and if you don't have friends who are the average typical Democrat or Republican, you know, in your head, you have this vision of the most extreme, you have these caricatures of, of who these folks really are. And that distorts how you see them. It distorts how you feel about them. And, you know, we're, that's why we're, we're, we're so angry about stuff and angry. We hate these other folks that we don't even really know who, who they are. We just have caricatures in our head of who they are and we hate that caricature. And that's, that's nope. uh, not good for a democratic society where you're supposed to recognize the political equality of those across the aisle and work together and try to compromise and solve problems. No, and that's sadly where we are with, with both sides, which is a tough thing to say. Even I don't like the word both sides because it seems too, like there's too many false equivalencies, but mm -hmm. in this case, it's accurate. We don't, we have the, the far left who believes, you know, in some ways that all white people are racist, right? That's about an 8% of our democratic um, progressives or activist class, whatever you want to call them. And then on the far right, you have people that believe what took place on January 6th was the Kumbaya on the Capitol steps. And so you're not going to get those people to agree on anything. Right. And that's never really been an audience of, you know, true news, right? Fox News is not catering to those people and MSNBC right. is not catering to those people. But I think what you talk about in chapter six is evaluating false political information and how key that is. Because the problem that we now have 
specific to the macroeconomic piece or the macro piece to our politics is that we have a very small vocal minority that dictates the primary elections in both parties. And because of that, there's not a lot of conversation about things. And so you talk specifically here and you give a good example of what we can do specifically to evaluating headlines and articles, right? Which is the lateral reading, which I talked about before. It includes investigating the source and the author and the author's sources. And obviously I do this as a reporter, but it, it will help people even that are listening to say, if they see something from their party that seems really off base, that, oh, maybe I should triangulate this at some level. Maybe I should look at another source. So if this was Fox, maybe I could go to the Hill or maybe I could go to, um, you know, the new, the new Republic or National Review, I should use a better example. And so maybe they did report on this. And if that's the case, it's, right. the National Review is a publication that has a little more credibility than like OAN or Newsmax or any of those things. But right. so is the article there? And you gave an example in November of 2022, which is really recent, where Donald Trump retreated a racially charged graphic with the headline, U.S. Crime Statistics 2015. And the image showed that the Crime Statistics Bureau of San Francisco claimed that 16% of whites were killed by whites, 81% of whites were killed by blacks. <laughs> so you're like, okay, I can say as someone who lives in San Francisco, I know there's no such thing. But what you talked about is that when asked about this quote, Trump claimed that the sources are very credible. And of course, there's no such thing as the Crime Statistics Bureau of San Francisco. Right. But there was, in fact, the FBI figures on that same thing, which he had to pull the numbers from because they were the mere image of mm -hmm. what he said, which was that 81% of whites being killed by whites and 16% of whites being killed by blacks. It was the opposite of what he said. So right. had we actually done our homework on that, we would say, oh, okay, well, let's look up and see if there's such a thing called Crimes Bureau exactly. of San Francisco. Right. Because mm -hmm. once you realize that, well, that doesn't exist. Okay, so then it can't be. But then if you plug in the numbers with Google right. search, you could actually see, oh, well, there was a statistic based on this. It was just the opposite right. of what he said. And no one checked that. And I had friends sharing that. And I actually got into a, a debate about that specifically because I was like, there's no such thing as wow. the Crime Statistics Bureau of San Francisco. I remember this vividly. And my buddy was like, really? And I'm like, no, I live here. So that's the first <laughs> thing I looked up. I'm like, why would it be specific to a small city? Right. Like, that was the thing for me. I was like, well, that doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense. Hmm. Right. It, if it was, if it was, if they left out San Francisco, I'd have been like, oh, okay, well, let me go see what that looks like. But it right. just didn't exist at all. And right. so I think that there's a really big piece to that where we as citizens can start to do things like that. And meaning that we can start to check sources. And then there's a little bit, I saw some, a white paper on how social media, and actually this is for Jonathan Haidt, hmm. talked about things that social media companies can do as well, specific to prompts. If you're quoting this, you're retweeting this or re sharing it on Facebook, they would have prompts that say, are you sure about this source? Right. Which was an incredible red stop sign. A lot of people, if they got just these, you know, random prompts, they wouldn't share it. Or mm -hmm. it, they were too busy. They're like, fuck it, I'm not doing it. I'll just <laughs> get it. I'm not sharing it, right? But right. It, we don't do that. Social media doesn't do that either. That's a whole, mm -hmm. whole different discussion we can have. But the idea of what you're talking about is to evaluate a little bit um, specific to authors and sources, which I think is fantastic advice. And you follow that up in chapter seven by talking about political numbers, which I thought was another great example. You talked 
Specifically, on February 9th, 1950, Joseph McCarthy said, the State Department is thoroughly infested with communists. I have here in my hand a list of 205 that were known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party. And part of this, and why this powerful, this opening was so powerful is that when you use numbers Mm -hmm. for folks, it has a framing effect that is more credible, correct? You want to chat a little bit about that? Because I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, um, I want to go back and and ch- just really quickly touch on sure. you know, one of the things you were talking about, false equivalency. And uh, one, of the, the, one of the reasons why I just focused almost, uh, well, a, a lot of the research that I share is just experimental research, survey research. And it shows that uh, you know, almost universally that Democrats and Republicans are both equally susceptible. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how, when you look at these studies, you know, if 60% of Democrats do this, 60% of Republicans do that and so on, because we're all human and we all have these same biases. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wanted to stay clear of some of these. I obviously use a lot of contemporary examples. I, I'm always really careful though if I, if I do an example of a Democrat than I do of a Republican because I yes, want you do. people I to be... read these books. You do that uh, very well. <laughs> and I, and I want, I want people, you know, to feel comfortable, you know, uh, reading it from, from both parties. That's kind of the point. But also I, I hope that people realize in these studies that you know, we might be able to say on this particular issue at this particular moment in history, you know, this party's worse than that party or whatever. But when you just strip away that stuff and you put people in an experimental setting and you're sort of, you know, giving them these things to look at different studies or whatever, both both succumb to the, these biases and uh, equally so. Um, and that's been pretty consistent. Then in terms of, you know, political numbers and the power of, of or the power of numbers, uh, that it really has an, uh, uh, a unique effect and can distort uh, what we think is accurate and what we think is true because there, it, the numbers just seem to be so objective, right? And, uh, but of course, and like you were saying with, you know, the Trump tweet, you know, you see these figures and we just sort of uh, assume that, that they're true. Yeah. But they need not be. They they could be completely distorted, or they could be misinterpreted, or spun in a particular way. And uh, one of the the studies that I share, which is one of the more better known studies that I share in the book, the Dan Kahan study, and and maybe some of your viewers have seen it. It's this. I won't get into the details because it's a pretty complex research design. But they they show people this like skin rash. People have a skin rash, and they put this cream on. Does the cream help you get better or not? Uh, and they, they show this and it's a pretty complicated, well, semi-complicated math thing where it's these numbers in a table and you actually have to calculate a ratio, but most people don't, a lot of people don't do that, but they found that people who are pretty good at math actually realized that they had to do that until it became about politics. And then they, they did it with gun control and, uh, and all of a sudden then the people you know, the, the sorts of people who could figure this problem out when it was just a skin rash and skin cream, they couldn't do that. Like they were driven by their partisanship and ideology. Uh, and so if, you know, if the, if the data said that gun control reduces violence, then Democrats sort of like jumped on that and they were able to do that, but Republicans would misinterpret it mm-hmm. and vice versa. If it showed, you know, that, that gun control, uh, was actually, 
it would result in more violent crime than it was the opposite. And it just shows that even, even when it comes to numbers, that our party does a lot of our thinking and it distorts how we interpret that information. Uh, it, it's almost as though even for people who, who are good working with numbers, if it's politicized, it's almost as if that ability goes away. Um, and it seems to be, you know, the, the research isn't definitive on this, but it seems to be that it's the what you were talking about, the, the elephant and the rider, right? When we see numbers that support our point of view, we don't that seem to support our point of view, the elephant kind of takes over and we don't we don't think about it. But if we come upon information numbers that seem to support the other party, then we then the rider almost takes over, right? It's like, wait a second, that yeah. can't possibly be right. right. And then we look into it. And those are the folks, you know, who sort of dug into it and they're like, oh yeah, no, that's not right. And but we only we only do that. We're hypercritical when and we think critically when the information goes against our party. Uh, we don't do that when the information is sort of aligned with what what we already think. And that's and that's the real problem. It's not that, and you sort of referenced this earlier, it's not that we can't think critically or we don't know how to think critically. We just do so selectively. We do know how to think critically, but we only do so when information challenges our point of view. And then we know how to challenge that study or That's challenge true. that survey, you know, yeah. but we don't do, which is all very good, which we should do, but we tend not to do that. So when it's our side, so you were referencing that Trump tweet, you know, when, when, Democrats saw that they'd be like, this can't possibly be true. Right. And then what do you do? You look at the source or you, you, right. you dig into it a little bit. Whereas a Republican would be like, yeah, of course that's true. Uh, but if it was reverse, you know, you would, you would have had then the Republicans thinking critically and Democrats sort of just accepting it. And so that's what we have to really work on is thinking critically when, you know, when it's our own side. Uh, yeah. And you talked about exciting. curiosity too, which I thought was a great word because that's one thing I've been not accused of, but told like, Joey, you're so curious. And like I, I genuinely <laughs> have a bad thing. <laughs> well, in the, I, they meant it as a compliment because it was mm. as if I'm looking at a story, I'm trying to be objective. I mean, that's, that's the goal of what we're doing at true 30 is like we, we screw up too. We have our own biases, but it's wherever the evidence leads us is what we want to report on. And that's kind of where this really came into to play with me with your book, because polls, as an example, have been a very, very powerful tool for any political walk. Here's what the poll said. Here's where we're going. Here's and they've changed over the years. And, you know, polls are kind of like market research and advertising. Our running joke is that we use market research and advertising like a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination, right? Because you can make numbers do anything you want. Right. A regression analysis, you're like, well, if you're working with a big brand and you say, these people bought this, you know, because we launch a campaign, we want the campaign to be successful. Mm -hmm. So 
you look at the campaign and then you start to look at the numbers and you're like, oh man, our traffic sucks. <laughs> but, but, but then you could look and say, well, on Tuesday at three o'clock, it was awesome, <laughs> right? So you could share it with a client. You're like, well, the metrics were off the charts. And they're like, when? <laughs> well, day part of two to four on a Tuesday, <laughs> we hit our metrics, you know? And they're like, hey, wait, good job. And you're like, thanks. <laughs> Everyone's happy, but you know, it's all bullshit. So it was one of those things where polls, I think, are, and you talk about this, and I want you to follow up too, mm. is that you ask, when you're looking at polls, ask these questions. Are the polls samples representative? That's a great question. Are the polls questions biased? And have the polls results been inappropriately aggregated? You want to talk specifically to those three points because that's a really powerful for our listeners to understand what they need to, you know, should look into with polls. Sure. Uh, so is the sample representative? So with any public opinion poll, uh, if it's a good one, they will randomly select a sample of, of people. And this is, you know, um, this is where a lot of people incorrectly think that you can't trust polls, uh, because they see, you know, we've got, you know, 320 million Americans or whatever, and they're going to pull 1500 of them. And so, and again, this, Intuitively, that doesn't seem right. How can you just ask 1500 people and, and they're going to represent what 320 right. million think? Well, yes, it works. Um, because as long as it's random, um, for the most part, it will work. But representative sample just means if, you know, 15% of your population is black, 15% of your sample should be black. If 50% yep. are men, you know, 50% of your sample should be men, 50% are women, then 50% of your sample should be women, 50% are Republican, 50% are Democrats, yep. then that should be reflected in your sample. And they're not going to be perfect because that's why we have a margin of error. And so I talk in there about, you know, uh, how, how to apply the margin of error. But the basic idea is that random sample, everybody in the country has an equal chance of being chosen. And if you have that, chances are the results of your poll are going to be very good. And that's very different from the kind of things that you see online where you choose to take a poll, right? That, that's self-selection. And that is Thank not you. a random sample. And so a lot of times, and I share the example of President Trump was uh, using these, like retweeting these polls out after debates with Clinton and so on, where he was saying, oh, look, I you know, I have 80, 80% said I won, but these were not random samples. They were just, you know, people going to a particular website and then they could take this poll. That's not representative. And, uh, and so that's the first thing that you have to look at. And you can read that in the fine print, usually under any poll worth its salt. It will say the results of this poll are based on a random sample of this many people on such and such a date. So it's really easy to, to fact check that. Um, the other stuff's a little bit more difficult, but it has become much easier in the internet age. So another thing that you should really look at is the, the way that a question is worded, because the way that you word a question can drastically alter the, the okay. answer that you will get. And, and it is easier now to do this. So oftentimes when, if you come upon a poll online, they'll have a link. Uh, that you can go in and it, and it will take you to the original poll. And now that might be 30 or 40 pages, but don't don't get overwhelmed with that. It just you can sort of scroll through it and then they'll have the actual questions and you can read the questions and then you can just ask yourself, are these questions biased in any way? And, uh, you know, the good polling firms, again, who are worth their salt, they they work really hard. They pilot this stuff to try to craft the kinds of questions that are biased. But again, no one's perfect. 
Um, but you know, if you ask somebody, uh, you know, do you think, say on the abortion issue, you know, uh, do you think the government should be dictating what women can do with their bodies? That's going to give you a very different, you know, answer than yeah. do you think women should have the right to terminate a pregnancy or something like that, right? Yep. And so you do have to sort of look at how they ask the question. And then the amalgamation part, this also gets to digging in to and looking at those questions, because a lot of times when it's not so much the polling, but the way that the poll is reported, you might have, and I provide again a couple of examples um, in the book, but you might have people reporting a poll, like let's say that, uh, you know, uh, 33% of the public thinks we should always, you, you should be able to have an abortion whenever you want. And 33% of the public thinks you should never be allowed to have an abortion. And then the other 33% of the public thinks sometimes. Uh, you know, maybe health of the mother, abortion, rape, uh, or sorry, rape, incest, yeah. those, those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, you could, you could have a, a group, right? Say it's a pro-life group come along and say 66% of the American public opposes abortion. Now that's not a false statement per se, but it's a very misleading one because 33% of that 66%, yes, they're opposed to abortion in some circumstances, like maybe really, really late in a pregnancy, but they're also in favor of it during certain time periods. And you could have a, a pro-choice group do the same thing. 66% of the American public support abortion. Uh, well, yes, sometimes, right? Um, and so you wouldn't be able to determine that unless you actually went into the poll and found out what the actual results are and to see if anyone sort of combined multiple categories to make it appear as if there was a majority opinion when there wasn't. And so it's it's not hard to do, and it's kind of fun, you know, uh, to do that sort of thing and dig into it when you discover things and uncover that sort of thing. But uh, but it's important that we do that because I think a lot of times we just come upon the polls that we see and we either dismiss them when we shouldn't or we accept them when we shouldn't. It's a lot more complicated. It really is. It, it goes back to the old Stephen Wright joke. It's that 87% of statistics are made up. Right. <laughs> yeah. I always love that. So specifically, I also like this example because, again, from my background in media, I understand how important the questions are. And you gave a great example of, uh, and this is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, which is a fantastic book for anybody. I've, I've mentioned it numerous times during my podcast, but it was an experiment with several Harvard Medical School physicians and they were given information on lung cancer surgery, and they asked whether they would recommend the procedure to their patients. The framing, of course, was very important, but here's the catch. Some of the doctors were told that 90% of their patients who'd had the surgery survived, while the others were informed that the procedure had a mortality rate of 10%. Note that the two descriptors here are logically equivalent. Uh, nevertheless, 84% of physicians in the survival group recommended the surgery, while only 50% recommend it from the mortality group. And that's a perfect example of framing because right. polls do that often. Mm -hmm. And to your point, if you look at, when I look at polls, it's the first thing I look at is the source. Was it self-selected? Was it random sampling? All of these pieces. And you can pull apart a lot of that data. Mm -hmm. And I actually got into it with an LGBTQ friend and group that I um, debate with specific to a lot of the research they continue to pull. 
because it's not random. <laughs> it's mm. very self-selected. Mm. And there's no real citations in the research backing that. And so again, I was accused of being, you know, anti-trans. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not saying that. I, I, I'm with you. I'm just saying this sample doesn't work for the right. following reasons, right? It's not random. It hasn't been... And, and if you look at the questions, much to your point, however you craft a question can dictate how the, the respondent answers the question. Right. And so these are great pieces of advice for uh, our listeners. And then you also have um, evaluating political arguments. And I love this quote too, is he is that will not reason is a bigot. He that cannot reason is a fool. And he that dares not reason is a slave. <laughs> That's really key. Because, I mean, we all, I think, become slaves to our own ideology at some point, you know, depending on what we don't want to reason or we don't want to debate or we don't want to do our homework. Um, do you want to talk specifically about how this, you know, the evaluating political arguments is, is a big part of what, what's going on here with our tribalism? Yeah, so I, I share... Uh... A great study by Druckmann uh, at the at the beginning of the chapter, and what they did was they wonder, there's so many wonderful research designs that I lay out, but but this one's a great one. They they had a couple different issues. I think it was like DACA and then offshore drilling. Yep, and they had a bad argument in favor and a good argument in favor for for both issues. Uh, and they had a, a bad argument against and a, and a good argument against. And when they didn't have any party cue, they gave like a control group these arguments. And universally, people said, this is a good argument in favor of drilling. This is not a strong argument. This is a really good argument against drilling. This is not a strong argument against drilling and so on. Uh, but then they gave another group the party cue. And what they found, while Democrats and Republicans, when there was no party cue telling you this party stands for this or this party stands for that, universally, Democrats and Republicans were able to identify good arguments as good arguments and bad arguments as bad arguments. But now when they when they gave you a party cue, even even when they let's say they they took the, the weak argument. Right. Uh, and they said the Democratic Party is against offshore drilling. And here's the reason why. And it was it was the weak argument. And they said the Republicans are for it. And they gave you the strong argument, right? Uh, what they found was Democrats were more likely now to all of a sudden identify the weak argument as the best argument, right? And the same happened for Republicans. It was vice versa. And so what that tells us is that even when we're confronted with political arguments, the political tribalism kicks in, even if the other side has the better argument, we will not acknowledge that. Uh, we will say that our side has the better argument. And, uh, and that's just, you know, and again, when you don't have those partisan cues there, people are, again, willing and able to think critically and identify good arguments and bad arguments. But once we inject party into it, it's like we lose that ability because now it's not about you know, who has the best argument? It's about, well, this is my side, this is my tribe. And so I'm going to say that this is the best argument. And so I, what I, then what I do is I, I, I try to walk through, okay, well, when we do confront arguments, how are you supposed to go about evaluating these? Mm -hmm. And I talk about how you can map out arguments and um, identifying premises and conclusions, and then, you know, looking into, okay, what's, what evidence is there to support these conclusions? I mean, there, there's a lot to evaluating an argument, looking at logical fallacies and, and so on. 
but the you know the the general tenor of the chapter like the general tenor of the book is that we we can evaluate arguments pretty well unless uh you know party is injected into it and we yeah. can we can evaluate uh an argument made by the other party and we and we can do so very well but we we don't do that when when it comes to arguments of our own party we just sort of accept them no it's it's a great point and you did i think you did a great job at the offshore drilling because you actually talked specifically where the questions are we should not drill for more oil and gas off the atlantic coast offshore drilling is dangerous for workers in marine life this argument is supported by two independent premises. So then the question is, are those premises correct? And right. do they point to the actual logical conclusion? And I think that that, if we can break those things down, is definitely helpful in our political discourse. But I think something that we can end with, which we're way over, I'm sorry. If you oh, no, know. it's, it's okay. a, yeah, it's cool. great. Um, is that the last chapter was an election fraud. And I think that I want to kind of, premises, because again, and I, I probably could have done a better job of this. I've shared a couple different quotes from Donald Trump, maybe out of my own animus, <laughs> but you did a fantastic job of making one comparison from a Democrat to a Republican, Harry Reid being one who made the same issues around, you know, making a false statement. But the idea here is that election fraud is not new. Mm -hmm. And I think that most people don't get that. And in this, this was a, you did a good job here of citing a 2020, 2012 Fairleigh-Dickinson survey found that 37% of Dems believe that the Republicans committed voter fraud to win the presidential election of 2004. And 36% of Republicans believe the Dems did the same in the White House in 2012. In 2016 alone, election litigation was up 23% compared to the 2012 survey, which is not surprising considering Mr. Trump was claiming that the election was rigged before it even began. Mm -hmm. um, what is it that we can do? Well, here's another piece that I thought was telling. 2016, NBC, again, news, 72% of GOP voters believe that Obama was born outside the United States. Right. So he was never eligible to be a president in the first place. What is it that we can do? Because this is not going away anytime soon. 2024 is coming up fast. We are going to be hearing about it. We saw it in 2020. Um, I think some of the litigation in Arizona just finished with Carrie Lake claiming right. that her election was rigged. This is a big thing now on almost mm -hmm. every election, specifically with Donald Trump. He will claim, my guess is, if passed his prelude, that if he loses in 2024, should he make the primary um, and get in the general and does lose, I think he will claim the same. Mm -hmm. What is it that we can do as a culture to deal with this election fraud problem? Because it's a big one. Maybe one of the biggest. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that's a really good question. And it's a really tough question. Uh, you know, we, we just, we have to, as, as a country, as individual citizens, you know, I mean, I, I just think we have to do our best to become less tribal. And um, because elections have always and will always be contentious. Mm -hmm. uh, by their very nature, they're important. Um, they're, they're going to be emotional, but, uh, we as citizens and as political parties and our political leaders, and I think they're the ones that really have dropped the ball on this, but they're sort of catering, you know, yeah. uh, to the public on some of these issues, but 
we just need to, uh, if, you know, I, I think it's fine if there is evidence of fraud or something like that, that obviously that needs to be investigated. Um, but we have to have some more trust in our institutions and in our fellow citizens. And, you know, we were fortunate in 2020 where there were a lot of Republicans who stood up and, you know, yeah, said, no, we, you know, we, we looked into this and there's nothing there. It was, it was free and fair. And, uh, without, without that, I think it, it would have been a lot worse because then it would have even been more tribal, you know, at least you had some members from the Republican party disagreeing, you know, with, with Donald Trump. And I think that, I think that ultimately is what didn't, I mean, it got pretty bad, but it didn't make things worse. And, um, it's what I write about in, in that last chapter. And I, uh, I won't get into all the details, but I, I go way back to Greek tragedy, um, and, in, in the trilogy, the Oristia trilogy written by Aeschylus. And it's just a, a wonderful story. And holy cow, I mean, is it relevant to what, yes. what we're experiencing at this time? And again, I won't get into all the details if you're interested in, um, you know, and encourage people to read it, but there's, uh, there is a trial held. And um, before the trial is held, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, asks both sides in the trial uh, that she explains the process. This is what's going to happen. And will you uh, abide by the decision? And before the decision is made, both sides say, yes, that sounds very fair. And I agree to abide uh, by the decision. And then, of course, when the decision is made and one side wins and the other side loses, the side that loses is outraged. And they say, you know, this wasn't fair. We were cheated and so on. And Athena uh, comes in and, and she makes two points that I think are really important. Uh, one, to the losing side. She says, look, you, you have to accept this. Um, this was a fair process. The, the rules of this process were laid out beforehand. Uh, you know, you, you knew the rules and, and you didn't have any problem with it beforehand. Just because you lost, you can't take your ball and go home, right? I mean, you lost. And in democratic societies, people lose. And that's a, a fundamental thing that, that makes democracies work. And I, I don't think people in this country have appreciated this until as of late, right? Uh, but that the losing side accepts the result. And when you don't have that, you don't have democracy, because if the losing side doesn't accept, you know, the result, and then you have something like January 6th happen, where people try to take power by force or try to stop, you know, the election from becoming official or whatever, that's not democracy anymore. And then, then you just have, you don't have a peaceful transfer of power, you have one side that doesn't have power try to take it by force, and that's the ball game. Uh, and so you need the losing side to accept the loss. But the other important part, uh, I think that we don't think about enough, and this is also what Athena says, is uh, she she tells the losing side that they will be respected and they will be appreciated, and that and that they will have an important voice in in Athenian society going forward. And that's what I call the magnanimity of, of the victors is that, you know, when our side wins an election, we can't gloat about it. We, we can be happy and we can be thrilled and excited and we should be. But um, we also have to realize that half of the country is crestfallen. I mean, we all know what it's like to have our side lose an election and how that hurts and how there's fear there. Uh, 
but if we have another side that comes out and reaches across the aisle and, you know, as we've had presidents throughout the past say that I am the president of all the American people, not Democrats or Republicans or whatever, that, that, you know, we're going to look out for the best interest of the American people. And you bring them into a coalition of governing, uh, you compromise, but we we're sort of losing that now where we think that if we win the election, our side could just do whatever it wants. And now we have presidents all the time talking about mandates. I have a mandate with, you know, you won 50% of the vote or 51% of the vote. Is that, is that really a mandate? And so you need both of that. And, and they both feed off each other. You know, if you, if the losing side, if we want the losing side to accept the outcome of an election, we have to make them feel comfortable that, that they're going to be a part of that government going forward. And, we're going to work with them and we're going to compromise and we're not always going to agree, but that's democracy. And if we don't, you know, if we don't want that, we don't, we don't want that. You know, if you want your side to win hundred percent of everything and you see the other side as evil and they need to be destroyed, then we're not going to have a democracy. And uh, we need to acknowledge the other side's political equality, even if we think that what they believe in and what they're working towards is injustice. Uh, we, we, have to allow them to vote and we have to allow them to advocate for that even though we think it's immoral that we think it's wrong we have to try to convince them that they're wrong uh and um you know this is this is what a democratic society is and it's not pretty and it, it can be messy and it can be ugly and progress can be slow but at the at, at the end of the day the alternative uh is taking power by force and if you take power by force then they're just going to try to take it by force as well and before you know it you're not living in a democratic society uh and so we need to we need to learn how to lose graciously in this country but we also need to learn how to win graciously in this country um and you know I, i'm sure you might experience it one of one of the things that you know, no one ever used to keep their political signs up or the political flags, you know, Trump flags and stuff, you know, like when the election's over, the election's over. And it it wasn't like that when I was growing up, you know, but now it's this sort of perpetual campaign. And so elections can be contentious, but it used to sort of happen for a couple months and then it went away. But now it's sort of just constant. And I think it's social media and cable news, but um there's just, it's always sort of, we're poking each other in the eye and uh, that that needs to change if we want to try to, again, reduce the temperature a little bit. No, I, I appreciated that, how you closed out the book with that uh, Greek tale, because it was very well written and I really enjoyed reading that. And I, I think that, you know, you also referenced uh, John F. Kennedy not trying to humiliate the former Soviet Union after the cable, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right. which I thought was really neat. And then what really harken back immediately for me was George W. Bush and how his gracious defeat and how he wrote a wonderful letter and how he embraced Michelle Obama. I mean, their relationship publicly, I think, was so helpful to the cause, right? There was obviously a division between this, um, but W. is someone who I, very vocal during his administration, I thought made a lot of mistakes and I didn't think he was, uh, you know, equipped for the job. I never thought he was a bad person. That was the difference. I And to this day, I actually think he's a mensch in many ways. And obviously he made some mistakes, but he's not someone, and he is someone I'd like to have a beer with. You know, that's people talk about that all the time. I would love to sit down and have a beer with W. I think he's a riot. He's funny. He seems self-deprecating and kind and a good dad and a good husband, all that. I, I don't have any issues with that. And I think that those are reminders 
that kind of play into it. I also want to mention that, and maybe the reason I mentioned Donald Trump so much is that I think he is such a curveball for this in the sense that if Mitt Romney was president right now, right. Um, or mis- excuse me, if Mitt Romney won instead of Donald Trump and he was our president, there wouldn't be the same division we have today in our culture. I'm convinced in the sense that he too is a good man. And he too is a good husband and leader and, you know, a uh, good religious man and, and all of these things that I just can't find anything wrong with him as a human being. Right. But when you see someone as flawed as Mr. Trump, you know, that just continues to double down on his, his vitriol and his nonsense. I think that's the hard part for us right now. And, and for you, I, I am of that where I have to like, make sure I don't gloat, <laughs> you right. know, when something bad happens to Mr. Trump, because it doesn't make, doesn't reflect well on me. doesn't reflect well in my organization at True 30. It's the goal of not trying to be a partisan uh, reporter, but I I really appreciated everything you did in your book. Obviously, it was uh, Yeoman's effort on the research front. The citations were amazing. You did a really good job. Your acknowledgments, you thanked numerous people for their role in helping you put this uh, wonderful book together. But I just want to say thank you, number one, for reaching out. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, This was a, a book that taught me a lot, and I read two to three books a week on politics. So I just want to say, you know, this was, this was cool. Much like I mentioned to Hiram Lewis, his book was framed in such a way and, and dealt with information that was so important. And I think the same thing stands true here. It gets a wonky a bit, which is fine. And I think my audience will like it for that reason, because a lot of the audience that I do have is genuinely interested in understanding things as opposed to fighting. So thank you again for your time, Tim. It was uh, great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Joy. Thanks for the opportunity. And it was uh, wonderful to talk to you. And and thanks for the support. And uh, thanks for all you do. (laughs) Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs. Mm